So if you have your Bibles, please take them and open them with me to Luke 1, verse 67. Luke 1, verse 67. And I'm going to pray right now that God would unite all of our hearts together despite differences in geography, differences in time when people are watching this. And I'm just going to pray that he would speak to all of us. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. You are awesome and glorious. And right now, I can say with absolute certainty that the greatest need every human being on this planet has, and especially my friends, the family that I have at Risen Hope, the greatest need we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is to know you. It's to hear from you. It's to see your worth and your glory in the word. And so I'm, I'm praying right now, Father God, that you would mitigate all of the, the, the uh, obstacles in having this recorded beforehand and that you would glorify your name in the hearts of your people, no matter the age, no matter where they're at right now in their walk with you, that you'd be exalted, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So two Christmases ago, um, if you can recall that, we had a series called the Magnificat. Magnificat is uh, Mary's song of praise in the book of Luke, where she rejoiced because of the fact that she was going to bring the promised Savior into the world, this boy named Jesus. And uh, uh, if you were to move backward in the book of Luke, just a chapter or just a, a few verses, you would find that that story doesn't begin with Jesus's birth being foretold, that story actually begins with the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist precedes Jesus in that book. And you'll find the story where, uh, you'll remember this, the angel comes to Zechariah, and uh, Zechariah is John's father-to-be, and he tells them that he and his wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a baby. Now what makes this improbable is that they are both old. And they, they were, up to that point, unable to have any children. But the angel says, listen, you're going to have a baby. And when you do, you need to call his name John. And he is going to be a prophet of the Most High God who will turn the hearts of the people of Israel, the children of Israel, back to God. And in doing this, he's going to make these people prepared for the Lord to come. And <clears throat> as you can imagine, this is probably... Very hard for Zechariah to believe, even though he's talking to an angel, and he doesn't believe in that moment. Uh, I mean, they're old. Uh, They have this inability to have a child their whole life, and so he doesn't believe the angel's report, and the angel responds to him by making him mute. He literally cannot say a word. And uh, so for nine months, just think about this, little John is, is growing in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, and his dad cannot speak at all. He can only communicate with a writing tablet, it says. And uh, that happens all the way up until John is born. When John is born, they invite people over to celebrate this miracle of a baby. And uh, when they ask Zechariah what the boy's name should be, he grabs a writing tablet and he writes John on it, the, the same name that the, the angel gave him. Um, and uh, uh, it says in Luke 164 that immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he could finally talk for the first time in nine months. And when we get to verse 67 of Luke 1, Zechariah 
now with his, his voice back, begins to sing a song over his son. And this song is a prophetic song. It is a song that is uh, embracing all that the, the boy will be, what his birth means for the people of Israel. And he's looking down at his son, and he's remembering the promise of the angel. And as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he just breaks out into singing. And this song is called, historically, it's called the Benedictus. That's what the church has referred to this passage in Luke 1 as, Zechariah's song of praise, the Benedictus. And what I want to do today is is I want to just spend some time today reading through this song carefully and just spend a, a very brief moment looking at the beginning of this song, this first week, and then God willing, over the next two weeks, um, to, to look at the rest of it and to really ask God, what does he mean to tell us by this, by this uh, song? And I would ask that all of our listeners who can hear me, older listeners and younger listeners, pray to God that he would give us wisdom and understanding and that we would know this, and that we would all be encouraged by what he has to tell us in this song that was sung first 2,000 years ago. And so let's read it. I'm going to start with verse 67, which introduces it, and then we'll read through verse 79. This is what the uh, song is. It says, first it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So that's the Benedictus. That's, that's, the, that's the song of praise that Zechariah is singing. So you can tell Zechariah is not doubting the angel's words anymore. He is fully convinced, looking down at the face of his baby, that something is going to happen. And it says the Holy Spirit fills him and he begins to, to, to sing this prophecy. And it's, it's not just about his own son. It's, it's also about the one that his son was born to proclaim. The very thing that the angel had spoken about earlier that year, that John, his son, this new baby, would turn the hearts of Israel back to God. And this is what the song was all about. The song was all about this person who would come and John's role to turn these people's hearts to that person. And it begins here in verse 68 with this line that God has, that he, he blesses the Lord God and he says, you have visited us and redeemed your people. That's why Zechariah is so glad. That's why he's thrilled. 
And it's why this song is so appropriate. He sees in the birth of his son the beginning of an act of redemption by God. And that act is borne out by something. Something had happened in the past that has led to him feeling confident that this act is going to actually be fulfilled. And that something is in verse 72. Look at actually 72 and 73. It says that God is going to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers. And he will remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore our father Abraham. So, so that's, that's the source the source of his confidence for this song is a promise from God. This is why God is redeeming his people. He's remembering the promise that he made and the covenant that he made and the oath that he made with their fathers, in particular with Abraham. This is where the mercy is streaming from, this promise. God's remembering this oath that he swore to Abraham. And that oath, we can see it in our, in our Bibles. It, it was in Genesis 22. And it began with a story very similar to Zechariah and Elizabeth's. It was the story of Abraham and Sarah. If you remember, both Abraham and Sarah, who would become the, the parents of the entire nation of Israel, were very old before their first child was born. And, and in fact, they could not have a baby either, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. But God promises them to provide them with a son, and their son's name would be Isaac. And even more than that, God promises that, that he's going to take Isaac and he's going to make a nation out of that, that boy that they're going to have. And that nation will bless the whole earth. But then when you get to chapter 22 in Genesis, something shocking happens. In chapter 22, God tells Abraham, I want you to bring Isaac up to the top of this mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. I gave you Isaac, your only son, and I've made promises about him that I will keep, but I want you to give him back to me. That's what I want. I want you to give him back to me. Now that's a, a scary command for a father to hear. Well, we know according to 11, Hebrews 11 that, that Abraham trusted God that no matter what happened, no matter what happened on that mountain, that God would provide everything that was needed to fulfill his promises, to make good on everything that he said he was going to do with Abraham and Isaac. He knew that, and so he is obedient to God. He takes his son, brings him up to the mountain to sacrifice him on this altar, but then God stops him. God stops him from doing it, and Isaac is saved from the sacrifice, and Abraham's proven his faith and his commitment to, to Yahweh, his God. And Abraham, you remember this scene, he turns around and he sees a ram that is caught in the thicket by its horns. And this is God's provision for the sacrifice. This is God's provision for the sacrifice that would be made on that mountain. The ram replaces Isaac on the altar. And then Abraham and Isaac worship God together. And so this is where that oath comes from, the oath that Zechariah is singing about. It comes from in response to Abraham's obedience to the shocking command from God. Genesis twenty two sixteen has this command from, from God or has this oath from God to uh, Abraham. Listen to this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so this is God's oath. And he swears by himself. You don't get any, any higher of an oath than to swear by God. And he swears by his own name, his own greatness, his own worth. This is not going to be a promise he will break. All of these things will certainly happen. That he will bless Abraham, that he will multiply his offspring, that his offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and that in his offspring, God says... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is God's oath to Abraham. And this is exactly what Zechariah is singing about. God is showing his mercy according to this promise in Genesis 22. He's remembering his holy covenant that he swore with Abraham. This oath that he swore with him. This is it. And this promise goes all the way back from Zechariah, all the way back to Genesis 22, where God spared Abraham's son just before he was going to be sacrificed. This is the event where that promise originated and therefore it is the event that, had, that this song is, is speaking of and was given birth to from. Now, all of this song from beginning to end, and we're only going to focus on a bit of it today, but all of this song from beginning to end is about the fulfillment of that promise, the fulfillment of that oath. But let's just go back to the first few verses of that song and look at them a little bit and, and see what Zechariah has in view at the very beginning of this song. Verse 68 says that God has visited and redeemed his people. And he's done this by raising up a horn of salvation that comes from the house of David. So this isn't John's son, John the Baptist, or this isn't Zechariah's son, John the Baptist. This is talking about someone else, this horn of salvation, a savior who would be born in the house of David. And, and this is the one that, that, that Zechariah's son is called to proclaim, this horn of salvation. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. He is who we would call the Christ. And he's spoken of by, according to verse 70, the mouth of God's holy prophets. So, so throughout all of Israel's history from Abraham on, there were these, these prophetic words about the Christ, about this Messiah that would come, and this is the same horn of salvation, that God would ultimately come to his people and bring re redemption. This is how God's going to rescue his people, and it's the whole reason that Zechariah is singing this song. This is a song of redemption rooted in a promise that God made to Abraham. Now, this word redemption means to, to ransom or to liberate or to deliver. It can mean to purchase something. It is uh, where there's a rescue that goes on in, in some ways where uh, the, the rescuer has to pay a cost in order to redeem or ransom someone or something. That's what redemption is. 
And what this tells us is that however this salvation that's going to happen with Israel is going to go down, it's going to come with a cost. That's what redemption is. If it doesn't come with a cost, it's not redemption. And it's going to come with a cost. Someone is going to have to pay for this rescue, which is exactly why he calls it a redemption. Now, it won't be free. And, and he, he depicts in verse 71 what this redemption is. Take a look at it. Verse 71, it says, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is the redemption that he's talking about in the first verse. This is the redemption that we see in verse 71. He, he's going to do this by the horn of salvation. Now, horn of salvation might be a foreign picture to us, but uh, a lot of people in Israel would have recognized exactly what this means. This is the shofar, this, this battle horn that the, the, the army of Israel would blow to signal before the, the enemy army that victory already belonged to their God. That they were going to come and they were going to win because God had already said that that was going to happen. That was what the shofar, this trumpet, this, this horn did. That God would bring victory to his people, no matter the odds, no matter the enemy, it didn't matter. And that's the picture that, that Zechariah's painting by using that, that phrase, horn of salvation. But I mean, even more obvious than this, and this is something that anybody from any people group would recognize, is that the horn of a shofar was typically the ram's horn. It was typically a horn that was, that was from a ram. And um, a ram's, ram's horn was was uh, used for protection and used for defense. I mean, it was a symbol of the strength and the power of that ram. So just think about this for a second. This is why horns exist. Think about it. God <laughs> designed rams. He literally put a weapon on the head of an animal. That's what a horn is. It is a weapon on the head of an animal. And that's what this is. So, so, when Zechariah says the coming Savior is a horn of salvation, the, the picture his song is painting is that there's this mighty ram who is slamming into the enemies of God and sending them careening right off the mountain. That's, that's, that's the picture of this horn of salvation. This is why Zechariah is overjoyed. And this is why he's singing praises to God. At last, finally, the Savior has come, this horn of salvation, what we waited forever for. He's finally here, and his son's job is to signal the arrival of God's rescuer. Finally, there will be redemption and salvation from their enemies. They will possess, as God swore to Abraham, the gate of their enemies. Everything that was wrongfully taken from them. Every ruination of their lives, their 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 place of residence, everything that they had, their possessions that was taken from them wrongly will be restored. That's the picture that's being painted here. God's going to rescue his people from their enemies. But the question is, what, who are their enemies? Like who, who does Zechariah have in view as their enemies? Now, it could be the Roman government. The Roman government had overtaken and occupied the people of Israel. They were, they were a, a powerful nation that was brutal and harsh in many ways. Maybe it was the leaders of Israel. Israel had many leaders. Some of them were religious. Some of them were political. Most of them were crooked and corrupt. Maybe it was that. 
They didn't have to go far outside their country to find enemies, and even if they did, they would find more. But even worse than all of those enemies combined, the people of Israel were suffering because they were lost. They had abandoned God. And they had forgotten all of the promises. Many of them had forgotten all the promises that he had made to his people over the years, especially the promise that he made with Abraham. And uh, what that means is that their greatest enemy, out of all the enemies they may have had, wasn't Rome. It wasn't their, their crooked leadership. It wasn't, it wasn't anything broken outside of them. Their greatest enemy was their own unbelief their own refusal to believe the promises of God and their sin against God. And we can see this in the song. Uh, If we were to skip ahead a few verses, and we'll be covering this in in more detail in the coming week, but verse 77, Zechariah says that his son, John the Baptist, who will become John the Baptist, will give knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of sins. That's John the Baptist's job. That's his role, to give the knowledge of salvation and secure the forgiveness of their sins. And this is where the song intersects dramatically with our lives, penetrates our lives here, because we know that although we may have many enemies on the outside of us, many, maybe, our greatest enemy is inside here. And it is our own sin. It's, it's how often we fail to trust God and his promises, and we're so willing to trust that we have our own understanding of life correct. We, we know what to do, and we're going to do it instead of trusting him. And when we do that, we're doing effectively what Israel did. We are abandoning and ignoring God in our lives, and that's sin. That's unbelief. And this is why this song is so important to us. This is why the horn of salvation is so critical. The mighty ram of a savior has visited his people. And that includes all of us, each one of us. He has redeemed us at a great cost to himself. Because this mighty ram doesn't gain victory over our enemies by crushing Rome or crushing any political force or any physical enemy outside of us. The ram doesn't first come to save us from those things, though he will. He first comes to save us from our greatest enemy, our own sin. And he does that not by throwing our enemies off the side of a mountain, but by going up to a mountain and dying in our place. And when he does that, this ram, this rescuer, this horn of salvation that Zechariah is singing about removes the single greatest enemy in our lives, and he removes it from us forever. He takes our sin, and it goes away forever. Remember that scene from Genesis 22? Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son, and God stopped him and gave him what? A ram, a horn of salvation, and that horn of salvation is Jesus Christ. The ram that died in the place of Isaac was a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. Where God spared Abraham's only son, he put forward his only son in his place. 
And this is how God has saved us and the people of Israel from our enemies. He sends his son, our horn of salvation, who doesn't crush the enemy, but is instead crushed by our enemy in our place. And in doing that, he gains complete victory over sin and death by taking all of our sin on his shoulders and paying for it on the cross. And this is what Zechariah is is talking about. Even if he didn't see it with full clarity, this is what he's talking about in verse 72. The cross is the mercy of God in this song. Think about this with me. In the greatest act of love that you can possibly conceive of, though we did nothing to deserve it, not a single thing to deserve this, God lifts us off the altar and his son, Jesus, comes and lays down on it to die in our place. That's what happened on the cross. That's how much God loves you. That's how much Jesus, the horn of salvation, loves you. God did not withhold his own son. Abraham didn't do that with with God, but God doesn't do it with any of us. And his son comes and dies for us, and in that act of of dying for us, he shows us mercy. And so in a few moments, we're going to have another worship song, and... um, I would invite everyone who is trusted in Christ Jesus to participate in communion in your own context, in your home, however you see fit. And as you do, recognize that the bread and cup represent this ram who was slain in our place. That's what this bread and cup mean. So that the greatest enemy in the whole world, our own sin, our own unbelief, could be taken away from us forever. This is why we do communion. And so as you do it in your own homes, remember this. Teach this to your kids if you have them there. Remember this. We do this because our sin is gone forever through Jesus Christ. Our horn of salvation is Jesus. And for those who've trusted him and his work, what this song says is completely true of you completely true of you. You can take it to the bank that God has visited and redeemed his people by sending his son in your place to die for you so that you could be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great, awesome God you are. We need you. We need you no matter the age of the person listening, no matter where they are in their mind right now, where they are in their life right now, what fears or concerns or thoughts they have in their hearts, Father God. We all need you to come and to help us see how glorious it is that the greatest enemy we have, the thing that is most eternally destructive to every single human being on the planet, has, for those who've trusted in Jesus, been taken completely away. Help us see the profound act of love that you have committed yourself to in sending your son to die on the cross for us. And I pray that as we worship in our own homes, that you would be exalted and magnified, that you would be lifted high in our hearts, and that we would come together one day in the near future to do this 
again, as a larger gathering, Father God. We ask for that. We also pray for the people across our community and our world who are fighting against um, the coronavirus. Father God, I pray that you would be with those people and that you would work in all of our hearts to recognize that, that in times like this, we need to cling to Jesus all the more. We ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.